Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to listen to what we hope you think is a good show that gives you kind of the latest information to help practice pharmacy, medicine, and and, and all areas better. Today is going to be a a very special episode because we're going to veer a little bit off uh, the pharmacotherapy topic and talk a little bit about actually a law case that has made a significant impact, I think, in the world of medicine, nursing and pharmacy talking about it. And so because of that, I'd like to welcome my frequent co-pilot and producer CE Impact, Jake Galdo, to the, to the show. Jake, as always, welcome. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. And also because I am by no means any sort of legal expert, um, I try to avoid that stuff assiduously. <laughs> we are uh, very honored to have uh, Mr. David Brushwood, who is a attorney and is actually a senior lecturer at the uh, University of Wyoming. So uh, David, welcome to the program as well. Thank you. So Jake, you want to get us started and tell us about this uh, legal case that I think has garnered a lot of lay media attention, but certainly even more so in the worlds of medicine, pharmacy, and nursing. Yeah, thanks, David. You know, as the producers of Game Changers, I try to keep up with Jeff on what's cool and what's hip. And this lawsuit came across my desk. And by desk, I mean Reddit. I found it on Reddit, (laughs) if we're going to be really, really honest here. But it was really interesting. And so I dug a little bit deep into it. And so to to kind of level set, in March of this year, a nurse was convicted of gross neglect of an impaired adult and negligent homicide. Uh, And this was from a medication error from a mistake in 2017. And it happened at Vanderbilt in Tennessee. There was a 75-year-old patient. She had a brain injury. She was going into uh, an MRI-like scan. Uh, She was a little nervous and asked for uh, and was prescribed Versed or midazolam to help with nervousness going into that small uh, area. And unfortunately, the nurse grabbed vecuronium, so a paralyzing agent, and the patient subsequently died. Uh, and so that happened in 2017. The nurse admitted the mistake. And you can get really deep into Reddit, into NPR, into all of these different articles and read about the different kind of discussions of what happened. And my first response or my first kind of thought when I saw this was, oh my gosh, we're now suing healthcare providers for errors, for mistakes. And this, from what I read, uh, and that's why we have David on here, because he's probably going to tell me I'm wrong, is one of the first times I ever saw where there was a criminal case against a medication error. Something that's usually triaged by boards of medicine, boards of pharmacy, is being dealt with in a criminal case. So that's the hot news that I saw in the lay media and on social media and how it's changing practice. It's a game changer in a different type of function. Jeff, is that what you saw as well? What would you read? Yeah. You know, yes, no, and, and it certainly is. I think, like you, I think I first became aware of this on Reddit, um, just because I, I subscribe to Reddit Medicine and Reddit Residency. So, of course, anything like this is going to be all over the place. So, I did some digging myself, and, and it is a tragic case. Um, I've been a hospital pharmacist now for almost 30 years, and this is not unusual that patients who are, are put in MRIs or CT scans sometimes get claustrophobic, and they say straight up, "Look, I can't. I'll freak out if if you put me in the machine." And unfortunately, we need patients to be really still, especially for MRs. 
for quite some time. You know, like doing a, a head MR, you have to be in the machine for quite a while. And so now in other places, they have open MRIs, which helps some of that. But some people still get really, really uh, claustrophobic. So it's not unusual. I mean, someone's like, well, why would you give somebody a sedative who's going into the MRI? It's not actually unusual at all for the anesthesiologist or even sometimes the primary care team to prescribe a low dose of a sedative just to calm people down so they can sit still through the imaging scan. So that's that, you know, someone who's listening is like, I'm, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me. That That's not that unusual. And so apparently what happened, you know, and again, we're getting all this from the media reports as well as I've, I've gone to the CMS port of the incident as well as, as uh, some of the investigations done by the Tennessean uh, newspaper. Uh, apparently what happened was this patient was to get, again, an MRI like type scan. It says like, I would assume it's an MR and was prescribed Versed or midazolam. And for those of you who don't work in hospitals, you know, now almost all hospitals have automated dispensing cabinets. So, you know, when I first came out of school many years ago, that was actually part of my job was to fill up, you know, the, the cassettes of, of patients and, and, and deliver them to the nursing floors and, you know, making sure that, that all the units had the medications they need. Nowadays, what happens is the patient enters, the nurse enters the name, the pharmacist enters the order, it pops up as they, as they agree with each other and says, yep, you know, the physician ordered X you know, we're going to give Y drug, the automated dispensing cabinet pops out that drug, you, the patient, the nurse pulls it out, checks it, make sure it's right. Often another safety check that what many bigger hospitals have is there's barcoding. So, you know, they barcode the wrist bracelet of the patient and barcode the, the drug to make sure, yep, that's exactly what you should be getting, et cetera, et cetera. So you may say to yourself, well, that sounds really cool and really safe. How did this happen? Well, what happened is because this was kind of a one-time order, the nurse, when she went to the automated dispensing cabinet, that she put in VE. She typed in VE, and VE is, of course, the name brand for Versed, and, and, but it's also the generic first two letters of Vecuronium, which is a paralytic agent that is used primarily in the operating room to facilitate intubation before the surgery gets started. And then in the ICU, we occasionally use it to start therapeutic paralysis because some patients need to be paralyzed while we're breathing for them, basically, and with, them, with the ventilator. And so apparently what happened when she got, she pushed in VE and unfortunately pulled out Vecuronium instead of Versed. And there were a number of overrides that in, in the system that she had to kind of continually, kind of, you know, there was alerts that came up and said, do you really want this? This is what you really want. And according to what we, what I've read, she basically just overrided all those alerts and basically took them out. So took the drug out um, and then basically administered it to the patient. And unfortunately, and again, kind of reading what I read in the, in the, in the notes that she uh, at that point left the patient as she was entering the entering machine and didn't kind of sit there and monitor for, well, unfortunately she gave a, paralytic. And when you get a paralytic, your diaphragm stops working and you stop breathing. And that's pretty much what happened to this poor lady. And she unfortunately passed away. Now, a number of people have noted that everyone makes a mistake. And again, I've certainly grown up working in pharmacy and in hospitals where the idea of, the, of, of just culture is, is really the standard. You know, it's like, okay, you know, we don't want people to punitively punished for making a mistake because they, they won't bring mistakes to our attention. And that mistakes are almost always a system error and not a, and not a personal error. And, and we need to design systems like the airlines design their systems so that we can have basically a zero error culture if we can. And so, you know, the, 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 many people have, have said, well, you know, this was, you know, this was a mistake. And yes, it was a bad mistake. And she ignored, you know, several standards of care for nursing. Why does this get into the realm of, 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 of criminal negligence? And, and again, I'm glad David's here to kind of walk us through a little bit of this. What I've read online is that one of the things that, that seemed to have really really convinced a lot of people that this was beyond the pale was that vecuronium, when you pull out vecuronium, and this is true, I've, I've seen the vial myself many times, it, it says 
there's a big, huge sign right on it, a big label that says paralytic on it. And there's actually little signs all around the vial that says paralytic. And so, you know, it would have a hard time not seeing that when you pulled, pulled the vial. The other big key piece is that Versed, midazolam, the sedative she was supposed to give, is a liquid. And so you drop the liquid and you inject it intravenously. Vecuronium, and in fact, all the, the non-depolarizing, if I remember right, almost all the non-depolarizing paralytics of maybe one or two that aren't, but most of the non-depolarizing paralytics come as, as a powder that needs to be reconstituted. So it comes as a, as a powder, you have to inject some sterile water or saline into it, dilute it out, then pull it out again and, and, and give it to the patient. So there was a whole bunch of extra steps there that the nurse would have had to have done to give vecuronium. And she, by her own account, said she'd given Versed many times. And so she had, you know, a lot of people, you know, kind of the, the, the court of public opinion. And again, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but it, it certainly what I've read on Reddit and stuff is a lot of people said that was the straw that broke the camels is that how could she possibly, if she's known that Versed comes as a liquid or as an injectable liquid, and now it comes as a powder, why didn't that ring all the alarm bells for her? You know, all that. So, so that's, you know, she did admit her error. It was actually found when she went to get rid of the rest of it because Versed is technically a controlled substance. They have to have a second nurse to, to waste anything that, so no one is, is stealing it. And the second nurse apparently said, uh, this isn't Versed, this is Vecuronium. And, and then that, that everything went along. There's a whole parallel story here too that apparently, and again, this is from the CM, CMS report, the hospital the patient was at declined to report this error to CMS as an error. Um, and that's um, any error that results in a patient's death or, or serious uh, problem is supposed to be reported to you know CMS or the, the Joint Commission or I mean a wide variety of people they need to report those to. And that didn't happen. They basically said the death was from natural, natural causes. And in the coroner's report really didn't make any mention of the vecuronium at all, basically. So there's been a lot of stuff online too about what's Vanderbilt, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to get punished, et cetera, et cetera. And, and again, I'm no lawyer. I don't know the answer to any of those questions. But that's, I think that's where I've kind of read to this point and kind of caught up on. So Jake, does that all seem reasonable to you? I think so. The real question is, did what we read online make sense or are we stupid from reading online reports? And, right. and I think this is where we go to David and say, David, how how off the mark were we from just like reacting to uh, journalistic reports. reports? Yep. So David, what, what's, what's your take on all this? Well, I don't trust anything that's on the internet. Perhaps I trust the Institute for Safe Medication Practices uh, more than anyone else, but we don't really know what happened and shouldn't rush to any sort of judgment. Every journalist has an angle. Journalists don't seek the truth necessarily. They seek readership. They seek notoriety. So let's hold off on taking as fact anything that we have read somewhere. What we do know, I think, and it's important from a legal perspective is that this nurse fell on the sword immediately. Not only did she admit that there was a mistake, she admitted that it was her fault and she should not have done that. You're not your own judge and jury. The judge and jury will decide who's at fault later on. Yes, it was a mistake. Whose fault it was, let somebody else figure that out. The other thing that happened that was unfortunate is that by the time they got to trial, really the only option they had was to blame the system, to point fingers at the hospital and say it was the hospital's fault. Boy, when you do that, if you say it was the hospital's fault, you put the hospital in the situation where the only option they have is to say, no, 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 it wasn't us. It was the nurse or the pharmacist or the physician. 
and you have the prosecutor or the plaintiff's lawyer or whomever saying, yes, yes, that's right. They're both right. The hospital was a terrible hospital and the nurse or pharmacist was a terrible nurse or pharmacist. Look at the things they're saying about each other. Never do that. Never blame the system because you're part of the system. You create animosity that way. What I'd like to do is just clarify that there are really three types of justice that we need to discuss. One of them is corrective justice. That's where the Board of Pharmacy corrects an error. They go in and say, this is wrong, start doing it right. Restorative justice, where there's a malpractice award that restores people who are harmed to the situation they would have been in if the negligent conduct didn't occur. And then there's retributive, retributive justice punishment. That's criminal prosecution. That's what we have here. It's very rare in healthcare. It's very unusual. This is an outlier. Right. This does happen periodically. It happened to a pharmacist in Ohio that some people may remember. There were some nurses in Denver 15, 20 years ago, but this is very unusual outside of opioids. Opioids, this is a benzo, well, a benzo wasn't even involved here, but it was prescribed. Right. Opioids is a different situation altogether. So we need to try to figure out what we can do to keep this sort of thing from happening again. And I, and I want to, I do want to touch, you know, retouch on something you just mentioned is that, you know, I, I think the general stuff that I've read online and, and, and I tend to agree, David, I'm not much of a social media guy. I have a, a pretty minimal social media presence, to be honest. Um, you know, you always kind of take what you want to, you take what you read with a grain of salt. But a lot of the, the stuff I've read about this is this is unprecedented. This has never happened before. And, and what I'm hearing from you is, yes, it's rare, but it, this isn't the first time that a healthcare professional has been held criminally liable for a mistake. Is that true, you think? Oh, that's true. But most of those are, I mean, they're surgeons who amputate the wrong limb. I mean, you know, and then the, the nurses out in Denver and then the pharmacist in Ohio and people can Google. It's easy to find those. And they're on the ISMP website. Right, right. I mean, the, the one that jumps out to me in my profession, of course, was the awful New England compounding uh, scandal that happened, you know, and had, you know, COVID has, has dilated my time view, but it seems like a million years ago, but, but, you know, it was, it couldn't have been more than 10 years ago, where, you know, again, there was pretty gross negligence on, on the part of a, of a compounding pharmacy, and it led to, 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 to many deaths. So the, you know, the vibe I get kind of reading is, I think everyone who's kind of read this stuff, you know, and apparently the patient, the plaintiff themselves, you know, says, yes, this was a mistake. I think the, the two paths that I've seen, and I'll be interested in your take on this, is one, I think a lot of people are like, well, this could happen to me. I mean, so what that means is that if there's a mistake, I'm not going to come forward with it because I could go to jail. And so they feel like it's going to be kind of a chilling effect on reporting medical errors. And if we don't report medical errors, we can't design systems to fix, you know, or prevent them from happening in the first place. And I think that's kind of the first path I've read a lot of. And then the second path I've read a lot of is just culture, which is something that I've tried to, you know, you know, every hospital I've really been in part of, I think probably in the last 15, 20 years is, is, is that, you know, we don't want to punish individual practitioners, individual healthcare providers. You know, if a mistake is made, we want to, we want to uh, design the system again to prevent them from happening in the first place. And so we want you to be, feel, feel comfortable coming forward and saying, this is a problem. So what's your take on, on that view with an eye to this case, David? Yeah, well, this has the potential to adversely affect the movement toward just culture, which has not been achieved yet. I agree. I agree. And there's a yeah. lot of work to do. ISMP has a lot to say about that. And I don't want to replace what they have to say. 
I think from a legal perspective, what's important to consider is who's interested in this. The institution is, their reputation. That institution needs to, has a high, is held in a high regard. If within the community, that reputation is damaged in some way, it's gonna be a huge cost to them. The family, the family can be very forgiving if somebody gets to them and discusses with them what really happened. The media, there are going to be people in the media who are journalists looking for a different angle than the punishment angle, but looking at a sympathetic angle, a way to say something different from others have said. Mm -hmm. The public, uh, we know the public trusts pharmacists and nurses. The public is looking for a way to reestablish that trust. And then there's the prosecutor, probably most of all. Prosecutors are elected. They play to the crowd. They have to right. because they want to be reelected. The most important thing to them is getting reelected. That's the case with any politician. Yeah. And so if they are hard on crime and want to look at this as an example of how tough they are, that's going to be difficult to overcome. On the other hand, they may look for an opportunity to appear to be compassionate and forgiving. And boy, if you can get to them and explain to them why that would be an important thing for them to do, then you have essentially achieved your objective. And there's some ways to do that, I think, that we can talk about if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, no, and I think I think that's I think that's that's a good way to kind of kind of angle this is, you know, again, I, you know, I, I'm not relitigating this from a pop podcast doesn't make any sense and 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 to me and it's like you know it, you know it is what it is and and what will happen will will, will happen and so I think the, the question is how do you move forward for this I mean you know I certainly empathize with with my nurse colleagues who see this and 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 I think may say to themselves well hell I've made mistakes before I mean everyone I mean and you know what I tell my students is you know any pharmacist who tells them that they've never made a mistake is lying to their teeth every pharmacist that I've ever known including myself has made mistakes fortunately in my case to my knowledge, none of them have actually ever reached the patient or had a, had a serious problem associated with it. But, you know, the, the, the bottom line is that there's no way you're going to be able to, to, to practice and have a 30, 40, 50 year long career and not make a mistake. And hopefully it, it doesn't reach the patient. Hopefully it doesn't hurt the patient. But, it, you know, again, that's all going to happen. And so I empathize with my nurse colleagues who are like, you know, gee, this could happen to me. And then what's going to happen to me, you know? And so I think going to, to talk about, you know, David, what can you do to help avoid that happening from the perspective of a healthcare professional, you know, how, how, as any healthcare professional, David, do we, you know, besides practicing the best medicine we possibly can, avoid criminal prosecution for an inadvertent error, do you think? Well, there are a couple of proactive things that can be done. First of all, if within any practice setting, exceptions to the rule become frequent so that they begin to engulf the rule, then make inquiry of a supervisor. Do it in a very polite way. If overriding automated dispensing units is a common thing, then um, just in a very polite, non-threatening way, say, please clarify for me, is, is this something that we're supposed to be doing? And then document the response that you get. And if the response is no, don't do it, then don't do it. If the response is, well, yeah, occasionally we have to then document that that response happened. The second thing proactively is get your own personal malpractice insurance. Absolutely. Some people, some people rely on their institution. They say, well, I don't need it. 
my hospital has it or my pharmacy has it. Well, their interests don't necessarily align with yours. And many insurance pharmacy and nurse pharmacist and nurse malpractice insurance companies have a, like a five or $10,000 coverage of a board of medicine or board of nursing disciplinary action. What the attorney can do is craft the optics in, that, in doing that. The attorney can say, well, here is what happened and that person is being hired by your insurance company, the real story. Controlling the message is very important. Right. There needs to be some way for the message of the difficulties, the challenges of nursing practice, the difficulties, the challenging challenges of pharmacy practice to be made available to sympathetic journalists. And a lot of people can do that. As a spokesperson, that attorney could do it. A professor at a school of pharmacy or a school of nursing, a, a trusted colleague, not talking about the case, right. not talking about the profession and the challenges that are faced. But the main thing is don't scapegoat the institution. Because as I said before, you just put them in the position of having pointed finger of pointing fingers at you. Blame somebody who's not there. Blame the guy who's not there. Blame the FDA for not requiring that the labeling, the packaging be changed. Blame, find out who inspected the pharmacy most recently from the State Department of Health or the Board of Pharmacy or whatever agency. And if there were deficiencies noted that weren't corrected, say, well, yeah, this, the Board of Pharmacy, the Board of Nursing, the FDA, they didn't really do their job. You can't criminally prosecute the Board of Pharmacy, the Board of Nursing, the FDA. So blame the people who aren't there, who are immune from criminal liability and say, it's on them. Take, shift the burden away. Interesting. And, and taking a big step back, I absolutely agree with you about the whole personal malpractice insurance thing. I cannot tell you how many times I've told students over the last 25 years that for God's sakes, get your own liability insurance for pharmacists. It's remarkably cheap, um, which I think gives you an idea of how often per, uh, pharmacists personally are ever actually sued because our, our, our malpractice rates are, are very, very reasonable. And I pretty much said word for word what you what you just said to, to my students is that, yeah, when it comes down to it, you know, if you think you're employers going to protect you over their own interests, you have another thing coming and they, they will absolutely, you know, throw you to the wolves. So you've got to have your own, your own malpractice insurance. And, and I'm sure, you know, I mean, I would say the same thing to nurses or really any, any, you know, healthcare practitioner. So Jake, your thoughts on all this, what do you think? You know, I, I love everything that, that you both have talked about and your view on it. I think you've done a really good job with that. Um, what jumps out to me is going back to the system. I agree, David, we probably don't want to say, dear employer, it's your fault. And then the employer says, dear employee, it's your fault. And that's just bad. Uh, but I like the idea of looking at the system and saying, how does our system operate and how do we make it better? What is that continuous quality improvement? What is our quality improvement plan to begin with? And I feel like oftentimes, because this is a great way to do a CE and to have a good dialogue, I feel, right? Because that's a great way to, to convey knowledge. But I feel like we often go with this idea of least common denominator. We use the least available data available or that we need to conduct the transaction. And I say that from a very community pharmacy practice perspective. I don't need the indication on a prescription to adjudicate and get a paid claim. So I don't put indication on prescriptions. But that just doesn't make sense to me because we have the ability to put indications on prescriptions. So we have the ability to have that higher safety check, you know, and, and 
it's just really fascinating when we think about a culture of safety, how we can leverage the system and the data available to us to make that system better and use that uh, as, to David's point, the thing that we blame on. My system doesn't allow me to do that, so I can't have that safe environment. You know, when I look at some pharmacy management systems, this came up earlier this week, and I just think it's really fascinating. You would think that we should be able to document a patient's ethnicity, their race, and what species they are, because that's good clinical knowledge for us to have. There's a pharmacy management system that has race as a drop-down box, so you can pick the race of your patient, and it says white, black, Indian American, Asian Pacific, other, or animal. They mix species in race, and I don't understand why, and it just goes to show that we, we still have so much room for improvement on the collection and storing of data within healthcare to create that safer environment. So I think that that's kind of the angle that I would go at. Jeff, to augment everything that David's saying is really looking at how we've saved data, how we've documented data, and how we kind of use the system that is designed for safety to the best of our abilities and not try to, as David said, make the exceptions the rule. Right. No, I think that's true. And, and what I try to focus on is that, again, this is incredibly rare, but it, you know, it is not unheard of. This case, you know, has the potential, I think, to change some things, but it, it's not like, you know, wow, this has absolutely never happened before in the history of, of healthcare, where someone, you know, was, was held basically criminally liable for, for a mistake. And so, yeah, the, the question is, what will happen from this? I think what the individual practitioner can do is exactly what David just said, you know, and practice to the best of your ability, document, document. I mean, how, many, how often do we that document, 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 absolutely do that, you know, make sure that your policies and procedures are being followed. And if the standard of care in your hospital is you're ignoring your policy and procedures, you know, investigating that before something like this happens absolutely makes sense as well. And, you know, um, you know, I, I totally agree that blaming, you know, you know, saying, you know, it is X person's fault or X department's fault, especially in the early phases of this are probably going to get you nowhere, unfortunately. So, and, and could be, as David points out, more harmful than good. So any other last minute thoughts you guys have before we roll out of here? If not, uh, David, I really want to thank uh, you for taking your time uh, away. You're on the East Coast, so you're a little bit later than us, and you're probably uh, waiting to get to your day. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Hopefully we can have you back when we have other legal complexities we need an expert on. So thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And as always, Jake, thank you for, for being the co-pilot. Again, I, I wouldn't have ever thought to do this kind of game changer, so I appreciate Jake's idea to do this. So thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, that's it for this week. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thanks for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.